Good evening. Let's pray as we come to God's word. Lord God, this is your church, and it's a privilege for all of us to be part of it. Lord, as we come to your word right now, Lord, we ask that you would reveal your truth to us. Speak to us, encourage us, teach us, train us, challenge us. Lord, we ask that by your spirit you work in us tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Many of us know uh, the feeling of being stuck in an impossible situation. A situation that you just can't get out of. You can't see the light. There seems to be no end in sight. And you just can't do anything about it. This is sort of what I feel like when uh, I go fishing on a boat. I don't know if you've done that before. Don't get me wrong, but I love fishing. But me and boats and that slow rocking of the currents, it just doesn't go too well. Anyone who gets travel sick or seasick probably knows this feeling. And this is a lesson that I keep learning over and over and over again because I really like fishing and I always think it's going to get better, but it never does. Sometime last year, I went reef fishing with a bunch of friends. It was one of our better trips. We actually caught some fish for once, but an hour in on this whole day fishing charter, my belly begins to turn. Vomits coming out like barley on the boat, this way, that way, looking out and all I can see is blue, blue everywhere, the sea and the sky, no end in sight. And it felt like the day was never gonna end, an impossible situation. On a more serious note, we could be in impossible situations to do with anything, our family, our health, a relationship that's gone sour, a work situation, where there just seems to be no end, no relief, and no way out. Well, as we come to tonight's passage, it's a famous few verses that we use always around Christmas. But if we look at the context, we find a people stuck in an impossible situation. You see, Isaiah, he was writing around a time where God's people were about to be conquered and sent into exile. It was doom and gloom. It was an impossible situation, just like me on the boat, but far, far, far worse. You see, for God's people at the time, there was no hope, no end in sight. In fact, all they had to look forward to was being defeated, taken captive by their enemies. And it's in this context, this background of history, that we find these verses of Isaiah 9. And you know, if we think about it, we often rip these verses all the time out of context, and we don't really know how it fits into God's word. We talk about these four titles uh, in verse 6, and we forget about the rest of the passage. And we forget that this passage happened 700 years before Jesus is even born. And the people, it's not a good time. They're about to get smashed and defeated. Or we read this whole passage around Christmas, and we get to verse 5, Suddenly, we're talking about boots of warriors and garments being rolled in blood, being burned up by the fires. 
and we wonder why are we talking about this passage during Christmas. So, this, so tonight we're looking at Isaiah 9, verses 1 to 7. We're seeing how it all fits into its context, and then we're going to draw some conclusions on how it points to Christ and finish on what it actually means for us today. If we have a look, uh, verse 1, it's like a transition and a summary to this little section. You see, in chapter 7 and 8, if we look back, God's people, they were in this impossible situation. The people, the people had turned away from God. They turned away from the great promises given to them. They all seemed really far away. Uh, the king at the time, King Ahaz, instead of trusting the Lord, what he did was he decides to make a deal with the enemy, with the Syrians, and that's always going to end up badly. So all the people could see looking forward was judgment, gloom, distress, and defeat. And that's where verse 1 picks up. Have a look at your Bibles. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, He humbled the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. You see, amidst this gloom and distress, there's something that's going on that's about to change, a breakthrough in this impossible situation. And it's not because the people did anything. It's because the God of history is that kind of God. He loves his people, and while justice has to be done, God is itching to show his mercy to his people. He's the one who's going to intervene. If we have a look, these verses refer to the northern lands of Zebulon and Naphtali. Uh, This region in Israel was the place where Israel engaged with the world where they met with the Gentiles. It's where the Assyrians first came down from the north and took over the land. But Isaiah says here in the future, they're going to be honored. honored. Galilee, this northern land, this land mixed with Jew and Gentile, this defeated land will move from gloom to hope. And this is what Isaiah introduces here. He's saying, you're facing doom and gloom now, but this isn't the end. Because there's hope. God's going to act and there's going to be a change here. And this change is spelled out in verse 2, if we keep going. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. As Daryl has mentioned a number of times, uh, I'm driving a VW Golf. And one of uh, the new features of this and many new cars is the headlights have this automatic knob, so I can just leave it on that setting and just not worry about it. But one time when I was on the highway, I decided to play around with the lighting knob, and I did something really stupid. I accidentally turned all my headlights off. It was 11 at night. I was on the way back home from Toowoomba from Easterfest, uh, Angela was in the car, actually, and it was just before we started going out, so it wasn't a really great look. There were no street lamps in sight, just darkness. And for a second, I thought I was lost. Not a good way to impress a girl. Until I found 
the knob, I turned it again, and the light suddenly came on, and I was relieved, quite relieved. <laughs> remember, the, remember the Jews, they were in this impossible situation. They were facing exile. They were lost in darkness. They were walking and living in complete dark. And after reading verse 1, they're probably asking, what's this hope? How's this doom and gloom going to end? For them, the people, for this people in the nation, they were in total darkness, away from their land, away from their temple, and away from their God. And they're reading this. And Isaiah's prophetic answer is, you might be in darkness now, but there's a light coming. There's a light at the end of the tunnel for you guys. And there's a couple things to note here. First, uh, the concept of light is always tied up with God's presence and in intervening work in Scripture. From Genesis 1, remember, let there be light, to Jesus being the light of the world, as we just sang before, and the new creation, the light shining in brilliance in this new city. And here we see God's presence and God's intervening work with this great light dawning on the land. You see, God has not left his people. He's present, active, and working, even in this time of darkness, to bring the light. The second thing to note here in verse 2 and in this passage is that the phrases here are, word, are worded as something called prophetic perfects. What this means is that we'd usually say, the people walking in darkness will see a great light. The, a light will be dawned. You will enlarge the nation. On and on, straight future tense. But the phrases here are worded in a way that these future events that are about to happen, they're so certain to happen, they're so sure to happen, that, that they're spoken of as if they've already happened. They've seen a great light. A light has dawned. So far we've seen that the doom and gloom is not the end. There's hope for God's people because a light is coming and it's so sure and certain that it's going to come. And as we move to verse 3, it looks at the result of all this. What follows? What's the consequence? There's hope and light, but so what? What's it going to look like at the end? And the answer is there's going to be loads of joy. Have a look. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. Remember, Israel and Judah, there were no nation at the time. Israel was going to be destroyed, and Judah was about to get scattered into exile. But this thing that God is doing here, that he's talking about, he's going to enlarge their nation, just like Trump would say and Brendan would say, let's make God's people great again. But it's not Trump, sorry, Brendan, but it's God who's behind this. He's going to transform a captive, scattered people into a cosmopolitan nation. And this is going to bring joy, great joy to the people. Happy days. If we keep going, we find illustrations of the type of joy the people will have. And let me tell you that it's not just a passing joy, a fad that comes and goes away. You see, the people are going to experience a great joy, a unique joy, a vast and complete joy. It's like the joy at the harvest, 
After days and months of toiling the ground, finally the fruits can be gathered. All the joy at the end of the battle. After sweat, blood and tears, uh, the war's finally over. They've won, they're still alive, and they get all the plunder, the treasures and the spoils of war. So we've seen hope out of gloom, great light leading to great joy. And as we move on to verses 4, many of you know that I like sports. And when I watch basketball on TV, before the game, the commentators, they always talk about the keys of the game. What are things that each team has to do to win? For basketball, it could be things like defending the three-point line, don't give away turnovers, or as my friend would say, just score more points than the other team. Easily said than done. But as we come to verses 4 to 7, we find three keys of this passage, answering how all this hope and light and joy is going to happen. Three keys. You see, there's a Hebrew word pronounced key, marking out verses 4 to 7. There's three of them in verses 4, 5, and 6, and Brendan should know this. And the word key gives us key information. That's how I remembered it. It tells us the how or the why. It translates to for or because in our English versions. The ESV shows this if you have it, but the NIV is a bit lazy here and left it out in verse 5. But we have three keys of how this gloom and doom is going to turn into hope and joy, of how this light is going to come about. And the first key is in verse 4. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. The first key is that God is going to deliver his people. Isaiah says, Remember Gideon and Judges, remember Midian, when you guys were outnumbered 300 to the thousands and hundreds of thousands, and God gave you victory. You might look small now, but God is going to deliver you. He's going to save you. Isaiah goes on and he uses phrases that remind people of the Exodus. He's saying, remember Egypt, when you guys were slaves, oppressed, when your yoke or burden was heavy. And in Isaiah's context, the Assyrians, they were famous for their heavy yoke. They boasted, in fact, about how badly they treated their slaves. But Isaiah says, God's going to deliver you guys. He's going to shatter the chains of captivity, break the bars of bondage, and the rod of the enemies. The first key of how God is going to bring hope, light, and joy, God's going to deliver his people. And the second key is in verse 5. How is God going to turn the situation around? For every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. It's an interesting verse to quote around Christmas time, not the usual fuzzy feelings we get from this verse, but here we see that God's going to get rid of all oppression. No more wars, no more battles. The soldiers' boots and all their blood-stained clothes are going to be destroyed, incinerated by fire, gone forever, so that all that's left is peace, the second key. 
And that's something that God's people really desired and they craved as they stared defeat in the face and they looked forward to exile. And that's something that we still look forward today. As we look around the world, we see around the world, we see wars, persecution, suffering, and we ask, when is it all going to disappear? Well, Isaiah says that God's intervening in this world. He's bringing hope, light, joy, and he's going to do this by delivering and saving his people, and he's going to get rid of all wars for good. And the last key of this passage is in verse 6 to 7. He says, all of this is going to happen through a child being born. Verse 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. You see, God's going to bring hope, light, and joy through this child being born and given. And he's not just some ordinary child. It says the government's going to be on his shoulders. These are royal words for a leader. This guy, he's going to carry the nation on his shoulders. He's going to be God's king, God's ruler. And check out the names that this child will have. It's not like this kid is going to have four different names and we're going to get confused which one to use. You see, in Hebrew culture, names reflect character. So these names, these titles, they're describing who this child is. He'll be called Wonderful Counselor, literally a wonder of a counselor, having supernatural wisdom, God's wisdom. Remember before King Ahaz, he was the king and he made some really dumb decisions. He made alliances with the enemy, not the best kind of wisdom to have for a king. But this child will have supernatural wisdom. He'll be the great counselor, contrasting Ahaz and human wisdom and even transcending that of Solomon. Wonderful counselor. He'll be called Mighty God. Unlike the kings and judges, this child will perfectly carry out God's plan. No more stuff-ups from Saul, David, Solomon, or whoever else king. Because this child will be, is no less than God himself, the mighty, great, holy God of the patriarchs and the promises, fully man and fully God. He'll be called Everlasting Father, in the ancient cultures, the king was like a father to the people. And here, the child is called Everlasting Father. Not God the Father we usually hear, but the child has this name. It's talking about the child's rule and his kingship. And the emphasis here is on the father relationship. We've all got our fathers. Some of us know our dads better than others. And some of us have dads who uh, are not with us for whatever reason. But this child, his rule is forever. This relationship that he will have with his people lasts forever. And his concern, his love, and his care for them will endure forever. An everlasting father. And finally, he'll be called the Prince of Peace. This is what his rule looks like. Uh, society, a kingdom of peace, peace with God, peace with each other, no wars, no more oppression. 
And verse 7 finishes off this description of this child. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with wisdom and righteousness from that time on and forever. Again, this child's rule and reign is everlasting, and this fits with God's promises to David about an eternal kingdom, an everlasting rule in 2 Samuel 7. In fact, David's mentioned here exactly in this way and for this purpose. He's God's king. So while the people remember they look forward to doom and gloom, judgment and exile, Isaiah says, this isn't the end. There is hope because a light is coming. God is going to intervene. He's going to make a change and work his ways. And the result of this work is going to be joy, great joy, a once-for-all eternal joy. And how is this going to come about? Well, there's three keys. God's going to deliver, save, and rescue his people. He's going to get rid of all wars and oppression. And he's going to achieve all this through a child, a very special child, God himself, who will rule and reign forever as king of God's kingdom. And this is all God's doing, not ours. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. It's God's doing. It's not because the people did anything, but because God loves his people. He's committed to his people. And that's Isaiah 9 in a nutshell. And as we went through the passage, you might have noticed that I tried really hard not to mention Jesus, Christmas, the cross, or any of those things. We really dug into this passage and what it means in its context of Isaiah and the time. But as you were following, hopefully, it's obvious that as we're going through it, that this prophecy of Isaiah is really pointing forward to something else, something great. It's something that's not fulfilled in Isaiah's time. For them, it was a passage of hope in darkness, of trusting God despite all the other things that's happening around them. And over time, as we read in God's Word, some parts of this seem to begin to be fulfilled. The people eventually are set free and they come back to the land, but it's not really much of a land and wars are still happening around them. But 700 years later, the gospel writers record God intervening in this world, fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy. For we as Christians, we believe and we celebrate that this child being born and the son that's given, this saving and delivering work of God's people, this light that's dawned, this hope and joy that God's people have, all this is fulfilled in the birth and the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. The three keys of how this is all going to come about centers on Jesus. You see, he's the child that Isaiah looks forward to, the one that is, who is God and man, who will rule and reign forever. Jesus is a child that will coincide with bringing peace and ending all hostilities, and he'll signal God's saving work of his people. Jesus, he's a child that will bring great joy to all peoples, just like the words of the hymn says, joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart 
prepare him room, and all heaven and all nature will sing. He's the child that will bring light into darkness because Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus brings hope to a dead and dark world. So what does this all mean for us? There's a lot of things, but tonight I want to focus on just one thing. You see, we're coming up to Christmas, and there's heaps of things to find joy in during this time. Gifts, holidays, families, you name it. But the joy that we're to experience, that we're to know, it's in response to Jesus, this child we celebrate being born. Because in Jesus, God has given us hope. God's made a way for us to be saved, delivered, and rescued. Remember Isaiah's context here was a people facing an impossible situation. Doom and gloom, darkness and uncertainty. And this passage gave them hope. It gives us hope too, because you see, we've all been in an even greater impossible situation. A situation that the exile and the judgment in the Old Testament alludes to and looks forward to. We've all experienced hopelessness, being stuck in our sins, in our rebellion against God. And our future was doom and gloom, all of us, death and destruction. But now, as we read this passage, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. God breaks this impossible situation through Jesus. And now we look forward to salvation, peace, joy, and hope. But maybe that's not where you're at. That's not where you're thinking as we come to Christmas. You might feel like you're stuck in an impossible situation. It could be the birth of Jesus. Maybe we need to refresh ourselves of what the birth of Jesus means for us, for you. Maybe you need to do business with God tonight. Because God has intervened in history. That's what this passage is saying. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Let's be reminded and challenged by this hope and have the joy that Christ ought to give us today and this Christmas. And let's pray to this end. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for reminding us at this time of the year that you intervened, you worked in human history by sending your son Jesus, that the prophet Isaiah foretold of his coming, of the hope that you hold out through him, and the joy and the blessings that come forth through the person and work of your son Jesus. Lord, remind us tonight of the joy that we have in knowing Jesus. Plant within us the joy of salvation, peace, and relationship with you. And Lord, we ask that you'd work by your spirit to keep us, uh, keep, help us to keep placing our hope in Christ alone. Lord, for those of us who seem to be in tough, impossible situations, help us to trust you and cast ourselves in the hope that you give us. 
for those of us who have lost focus on the hope and joy that you give. Challenge us, Lord, and remind us anew of your saving message. Lord, we ask all these things for your glory and for the fame of Jesus Christ, our Lord. In his name we pray. Amen.